you can turn back to Acts chapter 6, and we're going to pick it up in verse 8 this morning. This morning, you sort of get two sermons for one today. This is the, some of you love the BOGO deals at Publix and shopping, and so this is, this is your kind of morning. And so you get Stephen's, Stephen's sermon, which is inspired by God, and you get Justin's sermon, which I hope is at least illuminated by God. And uh, so we're going to do both today. And so I want you to see two things from this message this sermon from Stephen and hopefully from mine. And I want you to see that this is both an encouragement and a warning. An encouragement and a warning. We all need encouragement. And there are, there are those, those without Christ, need the particular warning that's included in, these, in this passage. So last Sunday we saw this very thing, Easter Sunday, on the empty tomb is both an encouragement. It's, it speaks hope, it speaks peace, it speaks forgiveness of sins and life and power and comfort. So it's, it's encouragement, but it's also warning. Or Acts 17, that it's this, the, the empty tomb is this, is this, it, it's this, um, it shows this proof that judgment is coming. And so it's both. And so is this passage today, as, as Stephen's going to essentially recount Israel's history here, there is encouragement and there is warning. The encouragement will be this, is that God is patient with us. Amen to that, right? He is patient with us. He, he is patient with you and me. You, you may have re- royally messed up again and again and again and again. But hear me, God loves you and He's patient with you. He, he does not expect you to bat a thousand, to be perfect. He, he, if you've walked into this room this morning having really messed up your week or really messed up your life, you are in good company. Welcome. You're among friends here because we have too. But let me tell you this about the God of the Bible. He is, He loves you. He is patient with you. He sent His Son to die for you. And so He's patient. He is the, as, as the Lord real, reveals Himself to, to Moses in Exodus 34, He is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise God for that. So there's encouragement, but there's warning. And, and He goes on, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so, so this encouragement is that God is patient with us, but it's also a warning to us, as we're going to see, is that there's, a, there's an end to God's patience, ultimately, for those who don't look to Him by faith. Which is why, if you've heard His voice, the writer of Hebrews says, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. Don't harden your heart towards the Lord if He's speaking to you. And if you're hearing the Gospel, you, if you who have seen and heard the good news of Jesus Christ, Now is the right time. Today is the day of salvation. That's the warning. There's an encouraging word. The Lord is patient with us, but there's a warning here for those who reject Him that one day His patience will end. Judgment's coming. And so call upon the name of the Lord today. That's sort of the sermon conclusion at the beginning, in case the pastor just can't make it to the end. I want you to get that much. So so verse 8. Chapter 6 this is where we picked up. And so I'm just gonna, we're going to kind of walk through the passage, and then I've got like three concluding statements to, to pull it all together. And so, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So not just the apostles, but now Stephen, this, this servant-hearted, mercy-ministering guy, uh, one of the seven, he's used by God to perform miracles as he's pointing people to Christ. And not surprisingly, this just doesn't go over real well with the establishment there in Jerusalem. 
And so, verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, that as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. So this, quote, synagogue of the freedmen, that's what it was called, it was this Greek-speaking synagogue in, in Jerusalem. Remember, the Hellenists, those who had been scattered, Jews who had been scattered abroad. In this case, they were, these were Jews who had been scattered to the diaspora, and they, they um, spoke Greek now, but they had been enslaved. Now they've been set, they once, at some point, were set free. They've returned to Jerusalem, and they're part of this uh, synagogue, though, that's Greek-speaking, and is, is particularly, has kind of become this magnet, not just for freedmen from, that have come back, but also from other Greek-speaking people. So, peoples from North Africa and Asia. That's these, that's the, where these people are. Now, interestingly, you know, the Apostle Paul, who was previously Saul, that we're going to meet at the end of this chapter, his hometown was Tarsus, which is in Cilicia. Cilicia. And so, there's a pretty good chance that, pretty good chance that this is the synagogue he was part of. This is, may have been where he went every Sabbath, here. So Saul may have been the one who instigated this attack on Stephen. We know he's going to be a key person at the end of this passage, but he may have been right here from the beginning, this attack that really just begins as an argument, as a dispute. And so out of this synagogue, there's this mob that forms, we're going to see, and it does mob-like things. It stirs people up. It rallies people against someone whom they de- de- declare to be an enemy. And so in this case, they're coming after this messenger of grace, Stephen. But, verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They couldn't. Basically, he's dunking all over them here. As, as he's talking with them, he may or may not have been some naturally gifted speaker. It doesn't say, honestly, but the hand of God is with him and is on him and is working in him and through him and, and he's empowered by the Spirit and he, so that he speaks with great wisdom and in the face of this angry mob who's trying to trip him up here. And so they're frustrated. They, they can't hang with Stephen. And so they enlist some liars to help them out. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they falsely accused him of saying lies against God, saying lies against Moses. And they stirred up the people, verse 12, and the elders and the scribes. So they're getting everybody worked up about as they're spreading these false reports. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. We know that council now, don't we? That Sanhedrin. And they set up false witnesses. So, so this synagogue mob, this synagogue that was probably kind of a breeding ground for extremism within Judaism, this mob, they, they drag him to the, the revenge-hungry Sanhedrin. These people are just licking their chops. They are waiting for this delicious moment to finally enact some revenge here. Because they've, remember, they've dealt with Peter and John and the other apostles and they've threatened them and tried to, have wanted to kill them. And, and now maybe that, maybe this is their moment. So they're salivating here. Now, again, where have we seen this kind of thing before? It goes back before Peter and John. This is, this is the same thing they did with Jesus, remember? We'll come back to this, but there's a lot of symmetry here between Jesus's experience and Stephen's experience here. We'll make that clear at the end. So they said, as they come before the Sanhedrin, this man never ceases. You exaggerate much? Never stops talking about this. Never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They maybe misrepresented him a little bit here. So they falsely accused Stephen of disrespecting the temple and disrespecting their traditions. Now, Stephen had probably quoted Jesus. We, we make and see maybe why, again, they're, they're clearly spreading false reports. But you remember Jesus said, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 2, 19. But in that context, it's clear. Uh, John makes the point, makes it very clear that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And so he's prophesying of his own death and resurrection, the, the essence of the gospel message. So Stephen's probably making that very clear that Christ has fulfilled Moses' law, his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. It rendered the, their temple sacrifices useless. And so, but his words, they're distorted and they're twisted and they're used against him. And so, listen, this is not something we should be shocked by, is it? I mean, any time the pure, unalloyed, message of the gospel is preached it's there's often the accusation of being of it being some kind of anti-law message a no strings attached gospel message will almost always attract accusations uh, even today of being anti-law anti-nomian anti-tradition and on and on there are t- there are, these are the same charges that were brought against Jesus he was accused of the same thing he was overthrowing the law, and they will be brought against us. You don't love the law. You preach against the law. You preach against the commandments. You're attacking traditions. Now, how did Jesus respond to this? He says, oh, you, you, you love the law, do you? Well, how are you doing with keeping that law? How's that working out for you? Are you, are you batting 100 there? I don't think so. And he makes that clear. But Stephen here, he's, a, he's this relentless preacher of grace and he understands that Christ has fulfilled the law and he's, and he's freed us from the bondage, this bondage through his perfect life and substitutionary death and victorious resurrection, which we've been reveling in over the last, uh, the last week. And so verse 15. So this is what he, this is, this, these are the charges. But verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, what did that actually look like? I have no idea. Was he shining, glowing, maybe? Um, bright? Certainly, I think they expected to see a fearful, troubled, anxious, scared, possibly angry man. But he's none of that. His fists aren't clenched. He's not gritting his teeth and tightening his lips and, 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 you know, this grim stare. I mean, death staring him down. But when they see him, they just see probably God's undeniable peace on his face. He's at peace by the power of the Spirit. He's, we could say he's above the fray and they know it. They can see it and it stands out to them. I think there may also be more at work. I, I, I've thought a lot about this, and several commentators uh, bring this out. Remember, they're charging him of speaking blasphemy against God and against Moses. But what do they see? They see his face radiating like Moses's. Even greater, though. Remember, Moses came off the mountain. His face is, is shining with the glory of God. Now Stephen stands before them, maybe with a greater glory. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 to 11. For if there, if there was a, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation in the law of Moses, 
The ministry of righteousness, the gospel, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So it could be that Stephen has this far greater glory on his face as they charge him of being, as they charge him of being against Moses. Because he's proclaiming the completion of what Moses spoke to, spoke of. Oh, verse 1, 7, chapter 7. We're almost to the sermon. And the high priest said, are these things so? This is what sets it up. Are these things so? And this is where Stephen says, I apologize. I spoke out of turn. I take back everything I said. I just want to go back home and be with my family. Not quite. But again, their question, are these things so? Did you or did you not say these things? Yes or no? That's their question. They brought forth these false witnesses. Did you say these things? It sounds, we have, we hear this a lot in our day, don't we? The kind of gotcha journalism that's all around us, and this is on conservative and liberal. Uh, but, you know, they'll quote a snippet of something a person said without any room for context or nuance. Did you say this? Yes or no? And, that, and they stick a microphone in their face. And, what? Uh, and we see them fumble around. Well, Stephen's no doubt thinking, well, some of it's true, some of it's not. You know, I, I did say some of the things, but you're twisting my words and you're wrenching them out of context. They, they, these false witnesses claim that he said things that he didn't say, and, and they strip things that he did say out of their context. And so they're trying to corner him. Yes or no, Stephen? Did you say it or did you not? Are these things so? Well, he doesn't take the bait. He doesn't take the bait. And so he doesn't answer the way they want. Instead, he gives up. He goes on to give this very lengthy speech, the longest really recorded speech in the book of Acts. And he, and he goes on to just absolutely school them here. That's a dating me by saying an expression like that, I realize. Uh, but he gives this, this thorough treatment of the Old Testament and, 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 and how it all points to Christ. This is probably the most thorough treatment other than the book of Hebrews. And, and so that said, even this preacher of grace, what we're going to find out, who's empowered by the Holy Spirit in, in incredible ways, we read the end. He doesn't get, quote, results here. He doesn't. He, instead, he faces strong resistance that ultimately leads in his death. There's a lesson for us there, isn't there? It's not, it's not on us. It's not us to open hearts and open up blind eyes to see the truth. We're testify. We, we're witnesses of Christ. God is the one who brings the change and results. But we need to understand, he's, he's not trying, what he's going to do here, he's not going to defend himself here. That's not what he's trying, attempting. If, he, if that's what he's attempting, he's kind of failing miserably, if that's his goal. He's not trying to clear his name. What is he doing? He's trying to help them see God's patience and God's grace and their sin and their need for that patience and grace of God. That's what he's wanting them to see. He's bearing witness to Christ, not defending himself. Those are very different things. So he's not motivated by a desire to save his own skin. If he was, he could have said a lot less here. He could have taken a softer, more mediating tone. He could have probably avoided execution if he had just changed it and, and kind of left these. If that was his goal, he probably could have done that. 
And so for the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to walk through Stephen's sermon. I don't want you to get lost here. He's going to give this basically four-part message walking through the story of God, the Old Testament story of God redeeming and saving his people. And so he's going to point his hearers, the Sanhedrin and those people from this mob, he's going to point them, he's going to point us to the fact that God has been moving and God has been saving his people from the beginning. And Jesus is the culmination. He's the fulfillment of that. He didn't, he didn't undermine it. He is, he's fulfilled it. And so this ought to be, again, encouragement and warning. And I hope that that will be evident as we walk through. All right, so quickly. So first, we're gonna, he's going to start with Father Abraham, who had many sons. And we're not going to sing that now. But I, I, I thought of this. Uh, our guide in, in, um, on our trip to Israel, Van, uh, was, his name was Salah. He was Muslim, actually. He was Palestinian. Uh, uh, and, and so, but he, 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 every time he would say Abraham, he would say, Abraham, our father. And he said, this is, this is, this is the only way Abraham's name is ever mentioned. It's always Abraham, our father. Anyway, I just thought of that as I was reading that, uh, this morning, but, uh, he's pointing them back to the father of this, of, of this people that God has made for himself. So verse two, is this so Stephen? And this is what he says. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So here's what he's talking about. Back out again. We'll kind of keep pulling, going in and pulling out. He's responding to this charge that he's disrespecting God in the temple. And so he's pointing them to the fact that God first revealed himself to Abraham, not in the promised land. No, he, 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 when God spoke to Abraham, when God called him, he wasn't standing on the Temple Mount, which didn't exist. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't, he wasn't in the borders of Israel. He was in Mesopotamia. He was in this faraway land in what's modern-day Iraq. And so he's going to keep pointing them uh, to this fact over and over in this sermon, actually, that, that God is not a regional God. He's not a God of one geographical location. No, he is, he is the sovereign Lord of the entire universe. And, and so he cannot be contained. He cannot be confined. No place is outside of his reach. We aren't saved by nearness to a location. We're saved by grace through faith. And, and so Abraham, he believed God uh, outside the promised land, and it was credited to him as righteousness, we know. And it wasn't because of something special in Abraham, and it wasn't because he was in some special place when God chose him. No, it was simply that God set his grace upon him. And that grace is God, of God is unhindered. It's unhindered. 
He was out living in the desert as his desert dweller. And God sovereignly came to him and chose him and called him to, to himself and, 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 and there, out there, away. And so then, so then Stephen's going to take them to Egypt. And so the 12 patriarchs, the end of verse 8, that leads to verse 9. And the patriarchs, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then we're going to see Joseph is kind of point two of his message here. Joseph, here's what he's describing. And so let me remind you, and we'll kind of fill in a few blanks here as we jump back into what, what, where he picks the story up. So remember, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. That becomes the basis of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so one of those sons is named Joseph. And Joseph is his dad's favorite, basically. And, and he has this pretty sweet coat that his dad gives him, the coat of many colors. And Joseph wears this coat with pride. And his brothers don't take too kindly to this. They see this as, you know, this kind of apparent favoritism. They don't like it. They're not happy about it. So then, but then on top of that, Joseph ends up telling his brothers about this dream that he had where his brothers are bowing down to him and following him. And that really kind of gets them all worked up. And so his brothers concoct this plan, if you remember. And they sell, they're going to get rid of their, quote, dreamer brother. So they sell him essentially to this band of gypsies. And, and they take his coat, they rip it up, they sacrifice an animal, they take the coat back to their dad and say, look, our brother has been killed by wild animals. And so he ends up in Egypt, in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's the captain of the uh, Pharaoh's guard. And Potiphar's wife harasses him. And that whole story ends up with Joseph being thrown in jail for years. We're not told exactly how long he was in jail, but for, for many, many years. And he gains favor, though, while he's there with the warden over this time. And, and this, this dreamer, he ends up meeting some, some other really important people in, in Pharaoh's house that were in jail, and he interprets this dream for them. And a couple years later, Pharaoh ends up having a dream that confuses and troubles him. And one of the guys who, who earlier jo, uh, Joseph had interpreted this dream favorably for him, he says, hey, Pharaoh, I know this guy. He was in, I met him. He was in jail. He's still locked up, and he interpreted this dream favorably for me, so go get him, and he can interpret your dream. That's two years have passed now since Joseph interpreted the dream for that guy, and now Pharaoh's calling for him. Two more years in prison. It's a long time, but it pleases Pharaoh what he hears from Joseph, and Pharaoh puts him in charge of all of, all of the land of Egypt, basically. And so, but it all started. This is, where, this is where he's going to jump in here. It all started with what? His brother's jealousy. His brothers, his brothers sin against him. So verse 9, and the patriarchs, the brothers of Joseph, jealous of Joseph, they sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb of Abraham, laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor. In Shechem. So remember, remember how the story in Genesis ends there with Joseph. 
Jacob dies, the brothers are scared. Now that their father's dead, Joseph, Joseph's going to say, you know, you guys are goners now. But what does Jacob tell them? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You, you sold me into slavery out of jealousy, but God was sending me to protect and to save us, his people. And so Stephen's main takeaway in telling this part of Israel's history, I think, is this, is Joseph was wrongly persecuted by his brothers who plotted his death. Does that sound familiar? This is, this is exactly what the Jewish leaders did to Jesus, right? But in, the same way, but in the same way that God was working through the wickedness of Joseph's brothers, so too God was working through the wickedness of these Jewish leaders to work salvation. Their sin sent their brother that sent their brother to Egypt also prepared the way for them to be delivered. And, and it's the sin of these Jewish leaders who've killed the Savior. And yet it was for, it is for their good, for their deliverance. That's his point. And he goes on, Moses. This is a long section here. So we've gone from Abraham to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Now they're in Egypt for these 400 years. And while they're in Egypt, Moses, uh, God raises up Moses for his people. And so remember, after, after several years went by, many years went by, the Pharaoh in Egypt, he doesn't remember Joseph, who's that, doesn't remember the promises that were made to him. And so he, he begins to enslave the people of Israel. And at some point, as they're multiplying in number, he ends up deciding to kill all of the Jewish boys, to drown them in the Nile River. So, But Moses' mother, you remember, protects him. And she keeps him for a period of time and puts him in a basket, floats him down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter ends up, uh, you know, ends up with Moses, bringing him, Moses, into the house of Pharaoh, raising him as her own. So we pick it up, verse 17. But at, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dwelt shrewdly, he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Basically, kills a guy and buries him in the sand. He supposed that his brothers, verse 25, would, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you were killed, as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? He thought he got away with it, but he didn't. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out. So they leave. Remember, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let my people go. And that story. So the ten plagues come upon them. The last one's the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh lets them go. And God opens up the Red Sea. And they walk through on dry land. And, and the Lord cares for them in the wilderness. And he leads them with this cloud by day. And this pillar of fire by night. And he, he provides manna from heaven for them to eat and quail. And, and, and so we pick it up. Verse 36. This man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt. And at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Mount Sinai, God gave the Ten Commandments. God, God gave the instructions for the tabernacle. God gave these living oracles to his people through Moses. Yet, yet, verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. But again, thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. I mean, even though God had freed them from slavery, had freed them from these 400 years of oppression in Egypt that they endured, what do they do when they get out into the wilderness? You remember, they grumble. They say, we'd rather go back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves in Egypt than die out here in this wilderness. We don't like the food here. It's manna. Ugh. We want garlic. We want spices and onions and those things. So they don't trust God. They complain against God, and they don't trust Moses. Verse 40, they said to Aaron, Make us, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is while he's on the mountain. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. So again, remember the story. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. He's praying. He's with God. He's writing these things down. And then he comes down off the mountain and they made this golden calf to worship. And they're just wildly engaged in the worship of this idol. And Moses confronts Aaron, and Aaron's like, hey, I don't know what happened. I, people gave me all this gold. I threw it in the fire, and this golden calf just jumped out. It's a crazy story. Verse 42, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So here's the thing. I know there's a lot going on here, and we're just blitzing through it, but this is what I want you to, to know and see. This is why Stephen's recalling this. Just like Abraham, just like Abraham, God appeared to Moses, not in Jerusalem, not in the temple, but outside the land, in Midian. 
Even there, this place where he's standing is holy ground. Wherever, wherever God is, that place is holy. And God chose him there, and he said to him there, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to use you, you're going to lead my people, and I'm going to use you to deliver them out of bondage. And how do the people respond? (laughs) Over and over and over, they repeatedly reject him. They, the text says, as Stephen, Stephen summarized, they thrust him aside. Just like the patriarchs did to Joseph. Just like these Jewish leaders have done to Jesus. Fourth part of the sermon, and we'll end. The temple gets there. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Now, verse 48 is very important. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? He's not limited to a building. Thank God. He's not limited to 310 Corinth Road in this room or something like that. No, God doesn't, does not dwell in houses made with hands. He's not confined to that. This was, this was particularly challenging though for Stephen's hearers though. If you just put yourself in their shoes. This was so much of the rub. It's the temple, the temple. I mean, the temple in Jerusalem was this spectacular building. And not just building, but this complex of buildings. It was a marvel, architectural marvel. And they were so proud of it. And they had, it had so much religious significance to them. And, and, and of their people's identity. And it was all bound up in this temple as they saw it. And so it was very easy for Jews to think like, like that temple virtually guaranteed God's blessing and prosperity and security of Israel. God must be on their side. He's, he's virtually obligated himself to preserve his people in order to preserve that temple. So if they have the temple, they must be right with God. That's how they were thinking. But that's not the case. And that became very clear when, uh, in, in 70 AD when the Romans came and just brought the thing to rubble. It was never rebuilt. So he's, so he's gone through this condensed history of Israel, with, which is absolutely brilliant when you think of this, because what there's nothing for them to disagree with here. This is their story of their people. This is history. They're, he's not exaggerating it. He's not changing it. He's just laying it out. This is actually what happened. No arguing about any of these facts here. This is what he's doing. He's drawn his argument from Scripture, and it's irrefutable. These are Bible believers that he's talking to here. But then he makes a turn in verse 51 and he drives it home. This last sentence, these last sentences are what get him killed. And, and, and so verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. So clearly on this day, he didn't show up to, you know, the old adage, win friends and influence people here. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. That righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who have received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So here's, he's landing on the plane. He's drawing this direct line between these people who've rejected Jesus and their fathers who rejected the prophets who spoke and promised of Jesus' coming. And so he's saying, don't you get it? We've always rejected God's anointed ones. We've always done this. Our fathers have always done this. The ones God sent to deliver us. This is what we've done as a people. And that's what you're doing now. You, you, you want to talk about Moses and now you're all upset that I said these things that you think are disrespectful of the law and harmful to Moses and our traditions. But just like our fathers rejected Moses and in an infinitely greater way, you guys are rejecting the Messiah. You've murdered him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And they're outraged to defend the law. He's saying the most blatant, the most heinous breaking of the law that you can imagine that that this law that you claim to hold so dearly is the betrayal and the murder murder of the promised deliverer, the Messiah, the righteous one. In your rejection of Christ, you in fact obliterate the law. You're calling me a blasphemer of the law. You're, you're obliterating it. You're concerned about the temple. You've destroyed God in flesh. You killed him. So he's pointing to the fact that with all their talk about loving the law, they don't obey it. They haven't obeyed it. In fact, they've broken it in the most grievous way possible. Now, did they all fall on their faces and repent and believe? Well, no, we already read this. They heard these things. They were, and we'll look at this next week, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. And they, they cried out with a loud voice, as we're going to see, and they rushed at him, and they stoned him to death. My prayer, as I said at the beginning, is this would be both an encouragement to us and a warning to us. It's an encouragement for us to go, this is the faithfulness of who our God is. His unrelenting patience and grace. He, this is what He's been doing and what He's still doing, and I trust Him. But it's also a warning that His patience is, while real, is, is, it has an end. It's appointed unto man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And so my prayer is that if you've not trusted in Christ, you would put your faith in Him. That that don't harden your heart, don't stiffen your neck, don't close your ears like these people did. No, don't, to the truth that God has for you, believe to believe in Christ. Look to Him by faith. Reject Him no longer. Receive Him as your Savior, your only hope today. But but just a few statements for, for all of us in that vein. Let me just three three statements, and we're done. First. The gospel, it's God's story. It's God's story. It's a story that he's writing. The big word we could say, and I hear this often now, it's meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. There's this big story that God is, 
is telling. And it didn't start in you know, the gospel according to Matthew. It didn't start in Matthew chapter 1. No, it started, he started telling it in Genesis. And so the Bible isn't just this random assortment of stories and little moral teachings and those kinds of things. No, it tells this one cohesive story of God redeeming his people from their sins. And it goes all the way back to Genesis. God's been doing this from the beginning. And Jesus has always been God's plan to redeem his people. He has always been plan A. There's never been a plan B. And so, and this is the great thing. We fit. We, we're part of this. We're not looking at this like as outsiders as Stephen's recounting this. This is our story. We're, we fit into this story that God's been writing and the God of Israel has been saving people by grace through faith since Abraham. And that's what, that's what Stephen's sermon is showing that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, this is, what do we, so too, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, it's been credited to you as righteousness. He will, he counts us guiltless, even though we're guilty of being lawbreakers. That's what he does in Christ. That's the story God's been writing from the beginning. This ain't new, brothers and sisters. That's great encouragement to us. It's the same message we declare. It's the same message we believe. It's the same message we're being transformed by today. Second, God's not confined to a building. He's not confined to a building or to any geographical location or any tribe or any people group. He, big theme here. I mean, this God's not limited to a particular spot on the globe. I mean, he doesn't live in temples made by hands, nor can he be confined to one particular place. No, heaven is his throne, as, this, as, as he quotes the psalmist. Earth is where he props his feet up, you know. It's his footstool. God's presence is never limited to any particular place. Psalmist, Psalm, where can I go from your presence? Where can I f- flee from your spirit? There's, I go, there's nowhere to go. The living God is everywhere, and he can bless, and he can save, and he can call, and he can use his people wherever they are. He called Abraham in Mesopotamia. He protected Joseph in Egypt. He called Moses from the burning bush in the wilderness of Midian. He, the tabernacle, which was Israel's sanctuary, sanctuary for centuries, was essentially just his movable tent. Implication for us, I think it's an encouragement, is the good news is for all the peoples of the earth. It's for all the peoples of the earth. You can take this good news to Afghanistan, and it's going to be good news there. You can take this gospel to Honduras and it's going to be good news there. You can take it to China and it's going to be good news there. And when you get to any place on the globe, put a pen anywhere on the globe, you know what you're going to find when you get there? He's already there. He's already working. He's already, he's already, he's already at work. Jesus promised when he said, go into all the world, make disciples. Behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. The gospel is the power of God into salvation wherever it's proclaimed. And the last thing, last implication of this, I say, is God, God doesn't need us. Now I wanna, I'll, I'll share you what I mean because that may sound a little differently than it's intended. But look at verse 50 again. So God, he's talking about he doesn't dwell in, you know, this, he's not limited to the, the earth, heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. He's, it's not confined to a building. And then he basically says in reference to heaven and earth, I did this. 
I made it all. Yesterday was Earth Day, and we, you know, there are different ways that that's recognized. And as Christians, we 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 love and we thank God for this planet and and in its its unique purpose in God's uh, unique place and role in God's purposes. And but what what we look around and all this magnificent creation, and God says, "I did it. I made it all." So I did all of this. I made all of it happen. And I would just say, when, when he says that, that makes all this, when we, when we hear that kind of talk at the end of this passage, it makes all of this, you know, it removes all of this from us, this um, look what I did for God mantra that we want to present. We want to we wanna show God our talents. We want to show him our little, our little drawings and stuff like that. Look what I did for you, God. And I'm not minimizing the sacrifice and the love and the labor, but this is what I want you to see. We, God, God, God says, I don't need your house. I don't need anything. I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, Psalm 50. And what this should do, it should give us a sense of peace. We're not, we're not laboring because God is in need and has this deficit that he's asking us to make up for. That's not what this is about, what the Christian life is about. The sovereign God of the universe is in need of nothing, even from little old me. So when we get involved in what he's doing and when we throw ourselves into like we should and we're actively engaged and we're laying our lives down and we're, we're, we're ordering our lives after the cause of the gospel and in line with his mission, it's not out of need. It, it, it's, he's simply inviting us to join in what he's already doing and what he's already accomplishing. And he welcomes us in. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from me. He, he's not ultimately dependent upon us and our skills and our resources or anything. I know there's that famous statue with no hands and, you know, God has no hands but your hands. It's baloney. It's, he's, that's not God. We, he, we, don't, we don't have anything he needs, yet in his grace he invites us to be part of what he's doing. We have everything we need in him to live in line with with his mission. And remember, this is the whole book of Acts we framed under this heading. Acts is about the ongoing mission of our triune God. God is accomplishing his work. He's bringing this story along. We're part of it, but we're not writing it. And it's not dependent upon us ultimately. So mission doesn't start with our involvement. We are joining in what God is already doing in the world. And so again, we ought to be going, we ought to be proclaiming, we ought to be fully engaged, but every, play, every step we take, God's already there, He's already working, He's already accomplishing. Alright, so I bring it back, I mentioned this earlier, and I want to come and land here. Because what you see here, what we're going to see next week, is there is this clear symmetry again between Stephen's experience and Jesus's. Stephen's experience mirrors Christ, His his run-in with the Jerusalem leaders here. Both, both men are accused of the same crimes by false witnesses. Both of them become targets of the Sanhedrin. Both of them suffer unjustly. Even the way they die, there's a lot of symmetry, as we'll see next week, what we read earlier. Now, but the message this morning is not, wow, what you need to do is you need to be like Stephen. That's not what this is recorded for us to tell. I mean, are there, surely, there's a great example. What a, what a gift, what a... What a what a what an opportunity there! But the message ultimately it's look to Christ. This is the repeated message throughout the Bible. Stephen could stand. Listen, Stephen could stand firm in the face of these physical threats and death. Why? 
because Jesus had already stood firm and faced hell for him. You understand that? Because Christ, this is what we've been reveling in last Lord's Day, in particular, Christ disarmed death through his life and suffering and death and resurrection. So we don't have to live in the shadow of death any longer in fear. This, is what's, this was what brought Stephen this liberty and freedom to be courageous and to speak like this. Yes, our bodies, they may kill, we sing. Our bodies will, de- will decay, but death's power is limited. Death has been crushed to death, we sing. And the sting of death has been removed, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. So we don't have to fear. Christ has won the battle. Stephen's life is a testimony to that fact. Let me end with these words from the book of Hebrews. And encouragement to us in this vein. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ has passed, passed through the heavens. He sympathized with our weakness in his humanity. He is, he was tempted as we are and yet without sin, perfection, suffered, died in our place. That we now have this access to the throne of grace where we can draw near and find mercy and grace and help in time of need. We started the service. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. We, we thank you for the help that you give. It's our, our confidence in that help and the certainty of it is not, it's not in ourselves. It's not in our, a location of being near a church building or in a church building. It's not through some custom or ritual. Our hope is in Christ, to whom we sing now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.